I don't know about you, but I enjoy optical illusions. And I have since I was a kid. I was remembering this week I had a whole book as a kid of just optical illusions where you were supposed to try to find that. Yeah, some of, some of you are nodding, nodding. Try to find the illusion and what, it, what was it? There's, you know, that famous line drawing where if you look at it one way, it's a young, beautiful woman. If you look at it the, the other way, it's an older woman with a big nose. Uh, on the internet, there's lots of these illusions. Maybe you've seen, you know, the, the meme about are they hot dogs or legs? You heard, have you seen this? These pictures where you can take hot dogs and make them look like legs? Don't look it up, Gil. It's not worth your time. It's funny, though. There was the whole blue dress, gold dress thing, right, where there was the dress, and some people say it's blue, it's gold, and there was this whole, why do we spend our time on this? I don't know. But I, I do find it interesting, so maybe I'm part of the problem. But this week, I was looking at the internet, and this set of pictures caught my eye. It wasn't new. Uh, I guess it was from a few years ago, but it was Prince William, Royal Prince William. And one way, he's standing like this, and it looks like he's making a rude gesture to the cameras. I'm not going to make the gesture, guys. You can fill in the gaps. But the other one from the front, you see he's holding up three fingers like this, because he just had another kid. And he's saying, oh, now I have three. So perspective often makes all the difference in these pictures, doesn't it? Well, today's gospel story about the Syrophoenician woman, perspective makes all the difference here, too. It's a notoriously tricky story. You can read 10 commentaries and get 10 different answers. How do we interpret Jesus' words to this woman? At the same time, it's tricky, but I think it's a story that has something significant to say to us about mercy, something we need to hear. I think Jay preached on mercy a couple weeks ago too, right, when I wasn't here. Well, now you get it from me today. Spirit must be doing something. This is a text that raises a lot of questions for us. So it's only appropriate that today it's questions that I'm bringing to us as well. You might leave here today, I'm just going to say it from up front, you might leave here with just some questions that you're wrestling with. That's okay. That's okay. Three questions that this story raises for us about mercy. To get us to the first question, I want to provide a little context uh, in Mark 6 was the feeding of the 5,000. We had that a few weeks back. The abundance of God's mercy and provision through bread and people eating their fill, right? The first part of chapter 7, which we read last week, was the question of what defiles a person? What makes someone clean or unclean? Not the things they eat, but the things that come from their heart. So it's no accident then that today, in the second half of 7, we have a story about a Gentile woman already unclean, who has a daughter with an unclean spirit, uncleanness all over the place. We're meant to read this story with Jesus' words already about food and ritual, not making someone unclean or clean, having that in mind. So Jesus leaves town after the previous encounter, and he goes to Tyre. This is Gentile territory. It's enemy territory. You might think maybe he goes there on mission. No. He goes there because he is exhausted. He's been trying to get rest, to get away from people. He's trying and trying, and people keep following him. It keeps not working. People hear about him. And it doesn't work here either. Even though he's gone way out of his way, he's not even in a town or city, but people find out, and they come. So picture the scene. Jesus is staying in someone's home, 
We're told that in verse 24, he enters a house. He's in someone's home. You can imagine he's resting. Maybe he's eating meals with them, talking. The grown-ups are doing their thing in the household and listening to him. There's kids running around, maybe some household animals. And this woman hears Jesus is in town. His reputation has made it all the way up to Tyre. So she comes on in. And the implication of the, the words in the text is that she's asking him and asking him and asking him and pleading with him to heal her daughter. She's asking him, please heal my daughter. She is desperate. She's determined. She won't take no for an answer. I imagine if my child was sick, I would do that too. And Jesus has kept saying no. That's the implication of the text. He's tired. He's trying to retreat. I haven't thought about this much, but you can imagine he said no to people before. He didn't heal everybody who needed it. He's not a wonder worker. And the text is very clear to us. This woman is not Jewish. She's outside of the family of God, and that's a big deal. I think about maybe Jesus thinking about mission creep. You know that term where you have a mission and you've got to stick with it, but things keep getting added. Jesus is aware of that. He is sent to the people of Israel. That's it. The mission to the Gentiles will come later. So I imagine Jesus looking around at the busy house. There's meals where maybe the kids are at the table. Sounds like there actually were little dogs running around. That's much more common in Greek and Gentile settings than in Jewish ones. So the context here that it's entire matters. Even in verse 28, the woman assumes this, right? She talks about the dogs under the table. There must have been dogs under the table. So I can imagine Jesus looking around and, and using an illustration for what's going on right there in front of him. He says no again. First, let the kids fill up. It wouldn't be right to take their food and give it to the dogs. Now there's theology behind this statement. God's blessings were first for the people of the covenant, then only through them to the Gentiles. You might hear Jesus saying, your time will come, but it's not yet. Picturing this scene helps me make sense of Jesus' words, but it still bothers me. It bothers me. It makes me cringe. As someone I read put it this week, did Jesus really just call that woman a dog? On the one hand, I really trust Jesus when it comes to women. He always treated women well, better than his contemporaries, way better than his contemporaries. I think about Mark's community that he's writing to as well. There were Gentiles in this community. They were on mission to the Gentiles. Mark wants them to see that Jesus laid the foundation for ministry to Gentiles in his words, the first part of chapter 7 about clean and unclean, and his deeds where he does heal this woman's daughter. So I, I don't think Mark wants us to take away that Jesus was being mean to the Gentiles here, but it still bothers me. <laughs> Maybe it bothers you too. I think it bothers us because we know it wouldn't, how it would be heard in our culture today. We know how it, we do hear it. I think it bothers us too because the sentiment we might read into it is so familiar to us. We've heard and read things like this, this kind of harshness. And we know that words like these can wound. It bothers us to think that Jesus might withhold mercy from this woman because of her ethnic and religious identity. Which brings me to our first question about mercy. Who deserves mercy? God's mercy or ours? Jesus' statement hurts our ears, and yet at this time, this is what a lot of Jews believed. 
The Gentiles didn't get God's mercy. Jesus' disciples wouldn't have added an eye at this. Who do we want to receive mercy? And who do we want to see punished? Do we show favoritism with our mercy? Are we quick to understand those who are like us and quick to punish those who aren't? Theologically, we're quick to say, well, of course, no one deserves mercy. That's the point. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if we're really honest with ourselves, there are times when we, when I, crave punishment, not mercy. We want to see people get what we think they deserve. I want us to take a second and just and look inward and be honest. I just want us to wrestle with this question. In part, you know, I, I look at social media, I look at the news, there's a lot of lack of mercy out there. There's a lot of people we think deserve cruelty, deserve not to get mercy. So as I, I list a few examples, I want you to just pay attention to how your heart responds. Do you get hard in your heart? or angry, or sad, or compassionate, just pay attention for a moment. Maybe you even want to close your eyes. Think about a homeless veteran panhandling on the corner. A transgender person who's beaten and killed. An unborn child. A woman who seeks an abortion for that child. A person who didn't take any COVID precautions, who's now in the ICU with COVID. The medical professionals working day and night to care for that person. A refugee from Afghanistan. An undocumented immigrant from Mexico. A white man wearing a MAGA hat. a Black Lives Matter protester. Who gets our compassion? Who makes our heart get hard? And what does Jesus want to say to us about that this morning? This is the question I kept thinking about this week in reading this passage. This woman who comes to Jesus, who no one would have thought deserved mercy, who do I think deserves mercy? And does that line up with the heart of God? Deep breath. The woman's response to Jesus leads us to our second question. She takes Jesus' illustration and runs with it. Okay. I accept your premise, I accept your illustration, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall under the table. Children are really messy eaters. My dog knows to hang out near my kid's chair, and that is where the good stuff falls all the time, whole meal long. In other words, the woman says, I'm not asking to join the meal. I know I'm outside of your, your covenant community, but I also don't think I need to wait for the meal to finish. Just let me have the crumbs. It is an astounding response. And Jesus recognizes it as such. I imagine him throwing back his head and laughing. You got me. You got me there. 
I really wish Mark would put in some of those little cues, like Jesus smiled or Jesus laughed. I don't know. That's how I imagine it. So what is it that makes her response so astounding? Well, first is her humility. She doesn't think she's entitled to anything from Jesus. She recognizes she's outside of the community. It's a different response than someone like Naaman, right? Or Naaman's told to go wash in the dirty river. He, mm. She throws herself on Jesus' mercy, is not put off by any brusqueness that might have been there. Her insight, she grasps the meaning of what Jesus says in ways that put the disciples to shame. Remember, all throughout Mark, Jesus says something and the disciples go, huh? And Jesus has to explain it. Well, here, he says it, she gets it, she runs with it. It's amazing. And then, of course, her faith. Like the woman who touches Jesus' hem and is healed, she believes all she needs are the crumbs of the abundance of God's mercy, and that will be more than enough to heal her daughter. Scripture tells us she's right, that blessings to Israel spilled over to the Gentiles, and Jesus knew this too. I think she persuaded him through her insight and her faith. Remember, he's always looking for a response of faith. And remember, he was persuaded by his mother to turn water into wine as well, right? But her, it's her response that really grabs me today. She had unshakable faith in the abundance of God's mercy and that that abundance was spilling out in the work of Jesus. She had a tenacious belief that God's mercy was for her too. She held on to that and would not be persuaded otherwise. I know it's mainly for you of Israel, but it is for me too. It is for me too, Jesus. Which leads me to our second question. Do I believe that I need mercy? Like this woman, do I believe so strongly God's mercy is for me, is for me, that I will keep on asking and asking and pestering Jesus for what I need? Do I even know that I need help? Maybe I'm already convinced of my own competence or I think I've earned everything I have. The collect for today is one of my favorites, this prayer at the beginning. God resists the proud who confide in their own strength, but never forsakes those who make their boast of your mercy. Which one am I? Am I relying on my own strength? Or am I casting myself on the Lord's mercy? Do I know I need mercy? And do I know without a shadow of a doubt that God's mercy is for me? Do you know that? No one has a stronger sense of justice than a five-year-old. Ruthie is very aware of anything that seems remotely unfair. Junie has two duckies, and I only have one ducky, and that's not fair. Junie got to turn the first page and the last page, and that's not fair. Well, Junie, my younger daughter, had a cold not long ago, and I gave her medicine for her cold. Ruthie said, Mommy, why can't I have medicine too? That's not fair. Well, Ruthie, you remember a couple of weeks ago when you had a cold too? Didn't I give you medicine when you needed it? Today it's your sister who needs it. Here's the thing. If we're not aware of what we've received of our own need for mercy. The ways we've been extended mercy in the past, we're not going to be able to be merciful to others. Brian Stevenson, who works with death row prisoners, talk about people who are in need of some mercy. 
He has a lot to say about mercy and justice in his book, Just Mercy. You might remember we watched that movie together last year. And he writes this. There's a strength, a power even, in understanding brokenness. Because embracing our brokenness creates a need and desire for mercy. And perhaps a corresponding need to show mercy. When you experience mercy, you learn things that are hard to learn otherwise. You see things you can't otherwise see. You hear things you can't otherwise hear. You begin to recognize the humanity that resides in each of us. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. But judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. I often struggle with mercy, I think. It's not my spiritual gift. We have some in our church for whom that's their spiritual gift. But not me. And I think part of it is because I've always been kind of good at stuff. Right? I'm an Enneagram 3. I'm an achiever. I work hard. It's really hard for me to know mercy that it's for me. Because I just think i got to work harder for it. Maybe that's some of you today. Maybe not. But for me to be able to extend mercy the way God wants me to, I have to be able to hear God's mercy to me too. That's what grabbed me the most this week. Do we believe that God's mercy is for me too? For you too? And our last question, how are we called to do mercy? Because mercy isn't just about making ourselves or others feel good. It's not about letting people off the hook all the time. In Scripture, mercy takes tangible form. Jesus heals the woman's daughter. That's mercy. James talks about mercy as caring for the physical needs of the poor. That's mercy. So who are the people right around us that are in need of mercy in physical, concrete ways? And what are we called to do about it? Rodney Stark is a church historian. He writes that in the ancient world, one of the things that made Christianity stand out was its mercy. And he writes this. In the midst of the squalor, the misery, the illness, and the anonymity of ancient cities, that sounds kind of familiar right now, Christianity provided an island of mercy and security, and it started with Jesus. In contrast, in the pagan world, and especially among the philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect, and pity as a pathological emotion, because mercy involves providing unearned help or relief. It's contrary to justice. Thus, humans must learn to curb the impulse to show mercy. The cry of the undeserving for mercy must go unanswered. Showing mercy was a defect of character unworthy of the wise and excusable only in those who have not grown up. That was the moral climate in which Christianity taught that a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. And it wasn't just talk. This is still Rodney Stark. In 251, the Bishop of Rome wrote a letter to the Bishop of Antioch in which he mentioned that the Roman congregation was supporting 1,500 widows and distressed persons. That's doing mercy. What might doing mercy look like for us in Highwood? 1,500 is a big number. What might our number be in Highwood?
Who do I think deserves mercy? Do I think I need mercy? How are we called to do mercy? I told you I'd leave you mostly with questions today. The good news is that even when we have these questions, even when our mercy falters, even when we're still not sure about Jesus' words to this woman, God's mercies are new every morning. They are abundant. And they are for you, too. Let's pray. Lord God, you know, we know mercy is at the heart of you. That you have had mercy on us in sending your son to us. That there's grace and mercy all around us. I pray that you would, whatever questions we need to be wrestling with today, we would keep wrestling with them. What does it look like for us to show mercy, to do mercy? Who do we struggle to show mercy to? How does mercy and justice work together? Show us our own need for mercy so that you can fill it and so that we can extend mercy to those around us. In the name of your merciful Son, we pray. Amen.